Well, if you, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one from these black chair pockets or the ends of the side aisles. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. Um, so we're turning to Matthew, chapter 1, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible's New Testament. This is on page, if you're using one of these Bibles we provided, it's page 687. And it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Will you follow along as I read? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we we rejoice to be together. We rejoice um, to be celebrating your Son. We rejoice to be, once again, gathered around your word and expecting you to speak. We want to hear from you. We want to meet with you. And we pray that you and your mercy would come and that you would speak. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And, well, my wife, my wife Kim and I have, we have young children who are here. They were so excited to be in um, what they call grown-up class um, this morning instead of their class. And because we have small children, we're tired a lot. And so um, one of the things that we like to do as sort of a victory lap after we get our kids finally asleep is probably like you, we like to sit in front of the TV and eat chocolate. That's like our, that's our celebration. That's about all the energy that we can muster. And so not like hours of TV, but like a show. We'll watch a show. And it seems like often the shows that we watch revolve around a mystery. Whether it's 
uh, Sherlock Holmes solving a mysterious disappearance, or it's a, a forensic team interpreting a crime scene, finding all the clues, or it's a, a team of doctors racing against time to solve, solve an illness, to, to diagnose something they've never seen before. Uh, it just hooks us. It just, it just draws us in. And, and these shows always start the same way. So before the credits roll, there's someone, someone appears on the TV you've never seen before, and they're going about their daily routine, and all of a sudden, something entirely unexpected happens. They're, they're hit with this just mysterious pain that just is debilitating, or they, they stumble upon a crime scene. They, they find a body, and then, and then the mystery is away, and, and we're just, in two minutes, we're hooked. We have to know what happens. We have to know how the mystery is solved. And that's, that's how great stories start, right? Great stories start with action that just draws you in. And it seems that nobody told that to Matthew. Because how does Matthew start his gospel? With a list of names, right? If, if Matthew, if the gospel of Matthew were made into a movie, you can bet they would skip right over this part and they'd get right, right into it, right? Maybe, maybe you, when you're, when you're reading the Bible, maybe you do the same thing. You get to a list of names and you just whoop, skip right over that to where the action resumes, But Paul tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So the Holy Spirit, who inspired Matthew to begin this way, led him to do it for a reason. There's something he wants us to see. He wants us to see that Jesus' birth was God keeping a promise. So in this passage, we're going to see what the promise is, who it's for, and what it cost. So first... What the promise is, a king who brings blessing. Matthew is very deliberate to show in this passage that the birth of Jesus is in fulfillment of a promise. Two promises, actually. A promise to Abraham and a promise to David. Can you see that those names run right through this passage? Look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he, he traces the line the lineage right from Abraham all the way, Abraham in verse 2, through David in verse 6, all the way down in verse 16 to Jesus. And then he names them again in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. Matthew wants you to see that if you want to understand who Jesus is and why he came, you have to understand these promises God made to Abraham and to David. So let's look back briefly at God's dealings with these two men so we can better understand what treasure we celebrate at Christmas. So first, Abraham. Who is Abraham? Well, Abraham was a nobody. Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, which was far to the east of what we now call the Promised Land, or Israel. And Abraham worshipped idols, like everybody else in Ur of the Chaldeans. But God, the God who made the world, chose to speak to Abraham. And he said to him, In Genesis chapter 12, he said, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God told Abraham to leave his old life behind, to follow the true God, and he made him a threefold promise that he would make this childless man into a nation, that he would give that nation a land, and that to Abraham and to his family, God would give his blessing. And of those three, the big one is 
the blessing. I don't know if, if it's still on the screen behind me, but if it is, you can see that, that the word bless or blessing appears five times in three verses. It's a really important idea. So what is God's blessing? Who, who would you look at and say, here's a person blessed by God? Maybe you think of material prosperity, right? Like a big Christmas bonus, you know, hashtag blessed. Like uh, moving into a place on the beach, right? Making partner. Or, or maybe God's blessing is a godly spouse. Or maybe it's healthy children, right? And all those things can be expressions of God's blessing. But you can have none of those things and still be blessed by God. Remember Jesus said, blessed are the poor, They didn't have the beach house, right? But they had the blessing. The blessing of God is God himself, God giving himself to you, turning his face upon you. To be be blessed is to be in intimate relationship with God, to have his favor. Now, I've been doing a bunch of reading on, on the American Civil War, and the president during the American Civil War, which was a time of just national tragedy, the, the president during that time, you probably know, is a man named Abraham Lincoln. And so Abraham Lincoln was the president, and he lived and worked in the White House, which means his, his young children were always underfoot. And they would just, they would burst into these meetings of, you know, the, the cabinet, the ministers. They would, they would interrupt him when he was meeting with generals, and the people he would meet with would just be bewildered and would be irritated. And they'd say, this is, it's the Civil War. Like, this is, this is serious business. We, we just can't have kids climbing the furniture. But when they would come in, Lincoln's face would just light up because he delighted in his children and he would put the business of the nation on hold to put them up on his lap and to listen to their stories. And, and that, that's a picture of the blessing of God. When you have the blessing of God, God's face is turned to you like that. And this is what God promised to Abraham. He says, I'll bless you and through you, I'll bless the world. And God did bless Abraham's family. They became the nation of Israel. And he did give them a land. And he he blessed them. He turned his face to them. He lived in their midst, in the tabernacle and in the temple. But the sad reality is that God's people continually forfeited his blessing by turning away from him. They'd worship other gods and they'd oppress the poor. And they they would do whatever they wanted to do instead of listening to God's word. And so God would turn his face away from them. He would discipline them by sending foreign nations to conquer them, and they'd live as slaves in their own land. And they would long for the fulfillment of God's promise, for God to again bless them, for him to turn his face upon them, and to do it in such a way that they could never lose it again. And maybe, maybe you've wondered, maybe you've wondered if you have the blessing of God. Maybe you've wondered, how, how could I know how could I know that I'm blessed by God, that, that, that his face is turned towards me in love? How can I know that the difficulties I'm experiencing in my life, that they're not evidence of God's absence, they're not evidence of his indifference, that, that behind these things, God is working for my good because he's for me? Maybe you've wondered, how can I know that I have God's blessing and that I'm never going to lose it? And the answer is in this passage, and we're going to get there. But first, we need to look at the promise God made to David. So who was David? David was nobody. He was a shepherd. And God called him to be king. He set him as king over his people to deliver them from their enemies and to give them peace, peace on all sides. And God made David a promise. He said, when you're, 
In 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. So God made a promise to David that his line would continue forever, that there would always be a king from David's family on the throne. And the people thought, ah, now we have the blessing. Now it's going to be different. We have a good and mighty king, and he's going to father a line of good and mighty kings, and we're always going to have peace, and we're always going to be fine. We're going to have the blessing of God. But David failed. I don't know if you saw that. Look at verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David fathered a son by another man's wife. David failed, and Solomon failed, and Rehoboam failed, and, and to varying degrees, all the kings failed. They all fell short. And in the end, the kings and the people turned so decisively away from God that he took them right out of the land that he promised to Abraham. You see that in verse 11. Matthew calls it the deportation to Babylon. The people were taken out of their land and sent far away. Now, when the people were taken to exile, it seemed like maybe God's promises were at an end. They didn't have the blessing. They didn't have a king. But God sent them prophets to assure them, no, God, God will not break his promises. God will be faithful. Through, through Abraham's family, a blessing will come. Through David's family, a king will come. And so the people waited for 400 years. 400 years ago, nobody even lived in Cayman. Okay, 400 years, that's a long time. They waited for 400 years, and so think what it would mean to someone like that, someone waiting like that to read this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham through whom the blessing comes. He's the son of David. He's the king. The promises have all come true in him. So do you want to know that you have God's blessing, that his face is turned towards you in love. Embrace God's king. The blessing comes with the king. And I wonder if that sounds like good news to you, because the, the blessing, who wouldn't want that? Right? Who, who wouldn't want to know that God loves you, that he's for you, that he relates to you as a father to a child? That one will take. But, but do we really want a king? We... Do we really want one more person telling us what to do? We, want, we Western people, we don't want more authority in our lives. We want less. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want a king. At least that's what we think. But fairy tales know better than we do. And so in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Narnia is under a spell, right? It's always winter. And not Caribbean winter, like Canadian winter. Like, like Calgary, right? So it's... It's always winter and never Christmas. And the people are waiting for the return of the king, for the great lion Aslan. And, and what happens when the lion comes, right? What's the first sign? Do you remember? Christmas. Christmas is the first sign. Father Christmas arrives. He gives the children these presents that they can use in the battle that's coming. And then what happens? What comes? Spring. The ice melts and the, the snow melts and the flowers begin to sprout. Narnia comes alive. So when, when the king returns, he doesn't then just force it into submission. He comes to set it free, right? The, 
the king brings the blessing. There have been many bad kings and queens in history, and we don't need one more of those. But what about a perfect king? A king who brings perfect peace, who delivers from all enemies, even death. A king whose laws don't inhibit freedom, but grant it by instructing us in the way to joy and abundant life. A king who brings us back to the God who made us so we can know his love face to face. Would you embrace a king like that? He's come. But for whom did he come? Secondly, who the promise is for. It's for failures and outsiders. So genealogies like this were common among Jewish families at the time because they had to track inheritances, right? And, and so these genealogies would be lists of men's names because the inheritance would pass father to son. And we see in this passage a lot of men's names, but we also see five women. And, and these, the inclusion of these names tells us something wonderful about God. So the last one, Mary, in verse 16, we'll look at on her own. But what about these other four? Each of these women is, is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, and they're all associated with they're either a Gentile, a non-Jew, or they're caught up in a scandal, or both. So Tamar, in verse 3, Tamar tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into becoming the father of her twins, Perez and Zerah. Rahab, in verse 5, was a Canaanite woman of the evening. She, she owned a house of ill repute, if you get my meaning. Okay? She... And she hid the spies that were scouting out Jericho. Ruth, also in verse 5, was wonderful. But Ruth was from Moab, and Moabites were forbidden from entering the assembly of Israel. And the last one, in verse 6, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, what David did to her was not her fault, but she was still an outsider. Not just because of the scandal, but because she was married to Uriah, who was a Hittite. He was a Gentile. And so, what's going on here? Specifically mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus are two Gentiles, a woman who married a Gentile, a woman of the evening, and a woman who pretended to be a woman of the evening in order to get her father-in-law to give her babies. Okay? These are hardly the ancestors you'd want to highlight if you were trying to establish the purity of your royal pedigree. But they're exactly the kind of people you'd include if you wanted to show that the king had come not for people who have it all together, but for people who have failed, people who don't belong. What, what kind of people did Jesus come for? For people like this, people who have messed up, people who, who can't get it together, people who don't belong. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've been away from church for a long time because you can't imagine that God or Christians have any time for someone with your baggage. Maybe, maybe even here you feel like you have to keep up appearances and not let, let on how messed up your past is or your present because, because everyone knows that Christianity is for good people with clean records. No, that's not who Jesus identified with when he came into the world. Jesus came for sinners. He came to bring back to God people who thought they were too bad, that they'd fallen too far. And at a time when Jews were waiting for a king just for them, Jesus came for everyone. Do you remember that promise? The promise to Abraham from Genesis 12, it wasn't just that God would bless Abraham, but that through him, he would bless all the families of the earth, right? The blessing would come to the whole world. And this is how he sent a king for everyone 
So everyone who would come to Jesus could come to God through Jesus. So Rahab belongs, and Ruth belongs, and we can belong too. The promise is for us. The blessing comes to everyone who embraces the king, no matter what you've done. And there's one more thing Matthew wants us to see. What did the promise cost? What the promise cost was God's son. So there's a pattern in the passage, right? You, I'm sure you got it. If you, I don't know how long you made it through that genealogy before you started to zone out, but you probably made it long enough that you got the pattern, which was that A was the father of B, and B the father of C, and C the father of D, and so on, right? There's this pattern that, that the whole passage follows until it breaks. The pattern breaks. Did you see the break? In verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Joseph is not the father of Jesus. Did you see that? He was the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So if Joseph is not Jesus' father, who is? Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the son of David, the king. He's the son of Abraham who brings the blessing, and he's the son of God. His life did not begin with his birth. The eternal son, fully God, humbled himself to enter the womb of an unmarried girl, to be born in a barn, to be visited by shepherds, to be raised as a carpenter. Why? Well, what did the angel tell Joseph? Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Son of God came to save us from our sins. He came so we could be forgiven, so our slate could be wiped clean, so failures and outsiders could come home to God. And the way he did that was by his death. He was laid in a manger so he could later be laid in a tomb. He secured for us the blessing of God by choosing to bear in himself the curse of God on the cross. On the cross, God turned his face away from his son so he could turn it towards us in love today and forever. Do you see what it costs God to keep this promise? It costs him the life of his son. This is how much he wants for you to experience his blessing by embracing his son. Listen, the promised king has come from heaven for you. He's come for you to save you from your sins so that nothing can keep you from God, so that God can turn his face upon you and do you good and so you can live with him forever. The king has come. Put your trust in him. He is the way back to God. Submit to him. He, he is a king. He's not a fairy godmother, okay? He is to be obeyed. But his commandments are the path to joy and hope in him. He has come once to make us new, and he's going to come again to make all things new. The king is coming again. Winter will end. Springtime will begin. And our joy will be complete in the kingdom of our Father and of his Christ. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice again and again. Um, In our hearts, we receive this gift of your Son. We trust in him that he is the king who has come to rescue and the king who has come to give us life in you. 
We trust in him. We give our lives to him. And we ask that you would use us and use Christmas this year, use all of our interactions, use all of our times together to bring praise and honor to your son, our king. In Jesus' name, amen.